Welcome to Pop Parenting, Season 2, where therapist and author Avram Nadigal and myself, Ellie Bass, drink a lot of coffee and discuss family dynamics, relationships, parenting, and more each week using 2000s movies to illustrate complex situations and examples. By the way, Pop Parenting is now rated in the top 20 Jewish podcasts to watch in 2021, all thanks to you. So thank you for all of your support, feedback, and movie suggestions. Please keep them coming. And don't forget to subscribe. We're available on all podcast platforms. Okay, here we go. Welcome back, everyone. Welcome to Pop Parenting. Avram, so nice to be hanging out again together. Um, okay, so this week we are looking at the film. This is Avram's choice, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, the new version, the one with Johnny Depp. And, and, and Ellie, this is what this would be. How many films have we done with Johnny Depp and uh, Tim Burton? Uh, we've done Edward's Mr. Hens, right? Right. Yeah, that yeah, was a yeah. Johnny Depp uh this one what? Um, oh did... um michael keaton what was the one with michael keaton beetlejuice oh yeah that's Timberland. right we've been yeah that's right yeah we've done quite a few of them now that's actually pretty cool yeah we kind of can't get away from him he's really good yeah um okay cast here we go all right so um and it actually was very fun because the truth is i don't think i i had watched the entirety of this iteration i do remember growing up with the gene wilder version when i was a kid and always being both fascinated and creeped out at the same time um and we actually read the book um uh, me and my kids when they were growing up we went through a ronald Dahl phase and read all the books aloud so um so it was very cool to see this this tim burton iteration um so i guess you know, I'm going to do a very quick on one foot because I feel like people are familiar with the story yeah. in different situations, but um, I would say You know, the story really is of uh, Charlie Bucket, who lives with his um, poor family in a town where it is overshadowed by this enormous chocolate factory run by Willy Wonka, who is a person, he as a child who grew up with a father who was a dentist who never let him eat any candy. And so he builds a candy empire. By the way, played by the uh, the great Christopher Lee, who oh. if you're a fan of vampire films, he, he played all the great so Dracula good. roles in the 1970s for the Hamer Hammer or Hammer films. Anyways, he 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 played all the great um, great uh, leads. Yeah, he does. Empires. He has the that that face and the voice of the you know sort of dark villainous um, character. He's wonderful, and and of course he's playing a dentist. So, <laughs> and and you know it's funny when I was a kid, I had braces and I, I had a, a headgear. Um, just like this kid, except in the film, of course, it's a torturous device because yeah. it's pulling back. That's right. His, uh, He's but in a it, constant it, smile. It wasn't so <laughs> dissimilar to that, that feeling of having I'm sure your... it felt that way. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so we basically watch, you know, Willy Wonka, who closed his factory um, to the public many years ago because so many people were sneaking in and stealing his secrets for his candy. And basically, cut the world off and then now many many years later he's decided to open the doors to five lucky kids who win the golden ticket 
um, which has become, you know, a, a euphemism in our days for like, you know, that one possible choice that could change your life forever. Um, and so we get the five kids who end up getting the golden tickets. We have Veruca Salt, who is the very, very wealthy and uh, um, girl who's used to getting everything she wants whenever she wants it from her daddy. We have um, Augustus Gloop, who is the uh, child who cons just constantly eats candy, can never stop and always gets it when he wants it. Um, there is Mike TV, which I think is such a funny name for him. So this is the kid who's obsessed with watching TV and playing video games and is consistently thinking that he's smarter than every adult that he encounters. And we have um, uh, Violet, Violet Beauregard, who is the gum-chewing champion of the entire world and who is a winner <laughs> no matter what. And we have Charlie Bucket, of course, who grows up with his, his lovely family and his four parent, grandparents who are always all in the bed together, who um, love and support him no matter what. Um, and so they go in there, you know, as we know, various horrific things happen to all of the children that have to do with the playing out of their vices and they disappear into Willy Wonka's factory and eventually leave. And the idea is the last child standing wins a big prize and the prize ends up being that they can inherit the factory from Willy Wonka. So spoiler alert, Charlie of course is the last standing child who goes in there with his grandfather with this very beautiful relationship between the two of them, which is really fun to watch. Char uh, Willy Wonka offers them the factory, but he has to go live there by himself without his family and Charlie turns it down. And Willy Wonka goes through an entire sort of experience of why this child would turn down this incredible candy factory in order to stay with his family and goes on his own journey of trying to understand why that bothers him. Eventually enlists Charlie to go back and make amends with his father whom he has cut himself off of uh, many, many, many years ago because his father would never let him eat candy because he was a dentist and they reconcile and then Willy Wonka changes his mind and Charlie and his family come to live in the factory all together and Willy Wonka joins them for dinner. Um, I think that's the end. Okay, did I miss anything important? No, that sounds like it's a good summation. <clears throat> Interesting, same sort of arc that, um, that happened to, to uh, in A Christmas Carol. Uh, mm. when uh, Scrooge also has his um, uh, awakening of cutting off people and then mm. coming to grips with his past. Uh, all, all of these, you know, these movies, not all of these, I should say, the classic movies sort of touching on many themes we've talked about from a family therapy perspective um, or, you know, how uh, cutoff is, has such a profound impact on one's life one's career choice, the relationships you establish, um, and how healing cutoff could um, could bring, uh, has the potential to bring uh, profound healing as well. Uh, mm. I think these films do a good job of, uh, of depicting um, at least the spirit of that message. It's also interesting because I see, I just read this line recently. I was re-looking at uh, The Maiden King with Robert Bly. And um, he has this line that says, any human will reach for love. 
And if that love isn't given, the next thing they reach for is power. Hmm. And it's so interesting because we see both with Scrooge and with Willy Wonka, you know, that the love isn't met, so they create power. Um, and it, it's a really, it's, it's true. There's parallels between those movies that I never thought of. So yeah, that's very interesting. And, and I think it spoke to the time where those stories were being written, where there was a real question about class and about, you know, you know, if you're poor, you're good. And if you're rich, you're miserable. And there's these kinds of narratives. So yeah, interesting. I think um, also, um, yeah. you know, uh, I, I'm, I'm sure I mentioned this before in the podcast, but uh, uh, the late Gordon Downey, the lead singer of the mm. Tragically Hip, was being interviewed many years ago, uh, and a woman called up, a fan, and she was going, oh my God, I can't believe I'm speaking to Gordon Downey, oh, I love you, <laughs> and you're my favorite, you're my favorite, and he, Gordon Downey, for those who don't know Gordon Downey, or, or even if you do know this music, um, you know, a very bright, dry wit sort of a, yeah. a guy, but he he said something that always stayed with me. Um after she was finished uh, with all these accolades, uh, he said to her, he's like, well, he's like, um, I, I, he's like, just know who you're holding in high, high esteem here. He's like, I'm a, I'm a man in my late forties and I still need the rush of the crowd and the applause hmm. um, for right. something deep within me or something. Right. And um, that idea that, um, that uh, uh, there, there is something um a vacuousness or I don't know what you would call it within some people maybe most of us um that we only know uh who we are either by the applause or the power and if you take that away um it's just very um not stable ground for for a lot of people right um, I just thought it was a an, a, a, an honest um self-deprecating comment by a uh a, a famous rock star um yeah whereas, I love it that's so funny. I just listened to a song where he and Sarah Harmer were singing together. If you've ever heard the song Silver Road with the two oh, it's oh. such a beautiful song. So good. One of my favorites. Such a great song. Yeah, it was so good. All right. Um, okay. I'm sure <laughs> enough, enough we could so uh, go down that Canadiana good music road, but we'll come back to pop parenting. For sure. Now. Sure. Um, sure. That'll be another podcast. Um, yeah. Okay. So I'm sure, like, I mean, there's just so many parenting things that you could do all over this, like both from the macro of Willy Wonka and Charlie to all each of the characters. So what do you have in your notes and where should we start? So um, I, I thought we would start with, um, are they called Oompa Loompas? Is that what they're mm -hmm. called? Yep. Yeah. So let, let's let's start with a line from Oompa Loompa, which um, I'll read it out. And so I think that some of the articles I read about this film when I was doing my research um, had a similar sentiment. Um, and then I, uh, I'm going to ask you, Ellie, if you agree or disagree with this um, assessment, and then um, maybe you can expand on it and I'll share my thoughts and we'll see where this goes. I, th I think yep. this podcast would be a good one for parents. Hmm. Um, it's an excellent one to sort of think about uh, uh, parenting and parents. Um, how much wiggle room do we have to change our parenting, hmm. uh, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, here, here's the quote. Um, Who do you blame when your kid is a brat? pampered and spoiled like a Siamese cat. Blaming the kid, kids is a lie and a shame. You know exactly who's to blame, the mother and the father. So that's the Oompa Loompas. Uh, they, they, they place the blame at the mother and father for Ronald these kids. Dahl, right? Sorry? <laughs> In other words, Ronald Dahl making a commentary. Right. Ronald Dahl, and I think that um, if you read any um, 
if you Google uh, uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory um, parenting or family, uh, the general sentiment is that this is a film that is a warning, a warning to parents. If you act like these parents, you will produce kids like, you know, mm. um, Violet or Veruca or uh, Augusta or uh, what mm. have you. Um, and if you're good, if you're a good parent, you will produce a Charlie. Um, so Ellie, you know exactly who's to blame. It is the mother <laughs> and the father. Do you agree? Do you disagree? Uh, what, what do you think? Well, I think it's interesting just to sort of start off in that this seems to be one of the beginnings of the parenting phase of our experience as humans, like where parenting became a verb. Hmm. Um, it wasn't just an, I'm a parent, like parenting is actually something that you do consciously and decide how to do it and blah, 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 blah. So I think, um, you know, which you've spoken before about in different talks for JFI about, you know, the anxiety that it provokes when you think of parenting as a verb, meaning that you can either be good or bad at it. Um, <clears throat> So I think that's in itself interesting. What, what do I think? I, I think, look, I, I'm, I'm in line with you. There's, there's this whole nature versus nurture. There are kids that come in with different temperaments, different experiences, different leanings, desires. And in Judaism, we would say different neshamas, right? A soul with a purpose. Um, and then, you know, and, and then the, the parent's job is to figure out how to be with, you know, teach each child according to his way. Um, so I, I think if you're asking about the burden of blame, I just think it's a bit of a weird question because it's such an, a, it's just such a mix of things. I think, yes, do, do parents, do the way that parents parent, um, does it have direct consequences on the behavior of the kid? I don't think we get this whole parent pop parenting. The whole idea of parenting is yes, clearly. Do I think it's everything like a hundred percent blame on the parent and 0% blame on the kid? No. Cause I, I think anywhere where we're into extremes, we're not going to run into the truth. So it's kind of a roundabout answer on my part. It's like, a, yeah. it's a bit of yes and a bit of no. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I think when I read, when I read this, uh, this Oompa Loompa line, and uh, it's one of the things I'm always thinking about when I'm speaking to a group of parents, mm. um, how do I convey a larger picture of why a child is, de is acting up, depressed, doing drugs, not doing well in school or doing well or whatever. How do you convey a message that this is bigger than parenting without absolving parents of some responsibility of that, you know, without, you know, how or do you talk about on, on the other side, shaming them, right? It's like, exactly. It, there's either absolution or total guilt, but really it seems parenting somewhere in between there. Right. And so, um, you know, how do you, how do you do that? That's always been very tricky for me. I, mm. I, I haven't nailed that down at all. Um, I think that parents who are very sensitive about this will always hear this as, oh, he's blaming me, right? And then parents who are aloof, you know, will hear this as, um, well, it's my spouse. I mean, <laughs> obviously, <laughs> like, it's, of it's course. Clearly you know, all their fault. Of course, yeah. Well, you'll, you'll see, I'll see this, right? When I'm giving, when I'm talking to parents, if I say something, I see like, you know, a husband look to his wife and do something like this. 
you know, point to her and say like, like he's talking about Nodding you, and, right? Yeah. yeah, you know. And then of course the third thing you know that parents do when they're when they're aligned on this is they they they, they will blame the teachers union or the teachers mm -hmm. or the prime minister or you know they'll, they'll the, there's always right. someone to blame. Um, so from a bird's eye view, how I want to tackle today's podcast is to introduce the idea that there that when you're thinking systems you're thinking many 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 parts over many many generations to produce what we have now and so i think the line i once heard uh i forget who i heard this from but some what, what some great family therapist said something if you want to blame anyone blame your great 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 grandmother sure like if you're going to blame anyone right. blame her Right. You know, go go back like nine right. generations. You got to put her. it somewhere. Yeah, if you got to put it somewhere, blame. Yeah, exactly. That's right. <laughs> um, so, you know, one of the things, Ellie, I don't know if you thought about this. I cannot watch films anymore without comparing without comparing the films to previous films that we've discussed. Yeah. It's impossible. Totally. Now. Yeah. It's, it's, it's very hard to watch a, a film without thinking back. And I always, of course, think back because there is somewhere in my heart, Ellie, even though we are so far into like, you know, the 2000s now, there was somewhere in my heart about our early days talking about the John Hughes films. Yeah, I mean, sure. I'll never really leave that period. It's, it, 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 it excites me to think that one day you and I will do something with those films to a live audience. But for now, totally. I couldn't help but think of the characters in this film, comparing them to the characters in The Breakfast Club. Mm -hmm. Because each kid is dropped off and John Hughes also gives you a touch of the parents just to give you a taste of um, these kids. This film does, I think, the same thing. I, I do not think it's an accident. I think that the way the story was written. W would you agree or no? Yeah, yeah. I think it's really an interesting comparison when you think about the kids and the, the kids in Willy Wonka and the kids in The Breakfast Club also. You could easily line them up, which I think is so cool. So, all right. Except for one. I'm curious if you can get it. Which, which one doesn't match up? Because I couldn't figure out who. I'm, I'm wondering if you can guess this one. Who doesn't match up with one of the kids in the Breakfast Club? Oh, maybe um, the sport guy. Um, really? Yeah. The sport, the sport guy is like the jock. Yeah. They match up, no? I thought, the t I thought Mike TV is more like Bender. He is. We'll get to that. Um, yeah. So I thought Augusta. I couldn't find an Augusta. Who, a gluttonous um who is right. the who is the breakfast club person who was a gluttonous uh you know yeah you're right yeah, pleasure seeking i couldn't think of anyone in particular although ali sheedy eating a you know captain crunch sandwich is up there <laughs> yeah that's actually i was thinking of ali sheedy i just i couldn't have. so here i want to go through the characters um and uh and then um what i did is uh for uh, i um uh, I don't know if I've mentioned this in the podcast. I might have mentioned this to you. For the past two years, I have been doing something that really has come together in, in a brilliant way. So I, I'm, I'm happy I invested the time. I heard this from a guy named David Sparks, who, who runs a podcast about Macintosh computers. He's a lawyer, very bright guy. And he said how he manages um, uh, his notes uh, because he, he, he reads so much. He takes all of his Kindle highlights and he imports them into a software called read.io, read.io. It's a subscription service. And what read.io does, it takes all of your Kindle highlights for all, for however, how many years you've been reading and you can categorize them. They have these like um, parameters where you can categorize them 
according to which books you want more of and which, which highlights you want less of. And then every morning in an email, you get a list of how many you want highlights of books. So mm -hmm. it refreshes your memory. But what you can do then is you can tag the highlights with a tag. So I have been doing this now for a year. So I get six highlights every morning at 8 a.m. in my email. Um, and I will click on it and it'll be, it's always, it's family systems books I've read over the years. And then what I'll do is I tag it, parenting, differentiation of self, projection process. And what's great is when we do a podcast, I go into read.io, I click parenting and all of my tags about parenting. Show. So what I am sharing with you today awesome. is <laughs> some of those tags on parenting. I think there, I think there, I think there's some really good stuff here that we'll, uh, we'll end with in terms of trying to think about things, especially with the school year coming. And yeah. there's so much anxiety. I mean, oh my God, Ellie, in my practice right now, you know, it's, it really, it's, it's, a, it's universal across race, culture, income, parents are and for good reason by the way they yeah. are just really like what's this year going to be like yeah, you know uh, so hopefully there's something here that you can um you can take uh walk away with okay um let's see let's start with um veruca so um this is mm -hmm. a, a young a, a young uh, teenage girl she always gets what she wants mm -hmm. um to the to the degree that um you know uh when she was looking for the golden ticket. Her father turns his entire company inside out so that they can find um, uh, a ticket for his daughter. Now, yep. I'm going to tell you something, Ellie. Yeah, I'm going to mm -hmm. tell you something. While these films are hyperbolic and exaggerated, right. to say that I have never worked with a family like this would yeah. be a lie. Because, <laughs> yep. oh, I do. I absolutely do. And just this year, right, Ellie? Uh, there's the, um, in California, those... Uh, some of those wealthy, uh, well-known celebrity families who paid universities. Yep. Right. What was it? Was it not pay to play? It was pay to. There was a term. It for was. It. Yeah, I don't remember, but it, yeah, basically, and they went to jail. Well, we yeah, one went to jail. One got fines. Um, but it turns out that this was much more well-known in in that area where uh, parents were buying off. Um, I don't even know what it would be called, um, giving endowments, I guess, to university to get their kids in. So, well, not the only that, that, they were like, they were like making, like lying and making things up in terms of, um, you know, the, the achievements that their kids had, had like, you know, oh, they were on the rowing team, but they had like photoshopped their head onto someone rowing a boat, like insane stuff. Right. Right. Um, and so to my mind, uh, the, you know, the character most similar to Veruca in The Breakfast Club would be Molly Ringwald's character, um, Claire. Uh, right. I think there's a lot of similarities between those. I don't want to get into, you know, we, we really don't have enough information other than Willy Wonka to talk about um, the origin stories of these kids. We just don't, j just like in The right. Breakfast Club. But um, I, I think that, uh, so I'm just gonna go through the kids. And then I think generally, there's a general theme that ties all these kids together. And that's what, what we're, you know, what I would like to discuss today with okay. you. Okay, so then there's Violet. Uh, she's competitive by nature. I think her personality and relationship with um, uh, her uh, parents is somewhat similar to Andrew in The Breakfast Club. Um, uh, but in this case, um, the mother, I think, identifies just more fused with her daughter than Andrew's father is with him. So meaning that, you know, um, Violet's mother 
almost sees Violet and as, a, as an extension of herself. Right. Dresses yep. like her. Um, when, when, when Violet talks, you could see Mother just smiling, almost as if she was saying the words. So that's what we call by fusion. There is no real separation between Violet and her mother. And likewise, if Violet fails, Mother would obviously see it as a failure um, on, on her part. Um, I think there's similarities between Andrew and the Breakfast Club and his father. I, I mm. think there's something very yeah. similar there. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I see that. Then Mike TV. Uh, Mike TV. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, I think there's a lot of similarities with John Bender with respect to um, the way they act out their anxiety in a very aggressive sort of way. But there's uh, there's uh, something fascinating, I think, about these two characters. Um, and we've talked about this on the show, how being passive on the one hand and being very aggressive on the other, two polarities are are mirror opposites of each other but are coming mm. from the same source of let's say you know a very anxious family that they're at and the end result is the same and here's a perfect example mike tv is aggressive right he's aggressive he breaks things he smashes things john bender is aggressive he'll smash your face in he'll mm -hmm. beat you up right john bender's family chronic alcoholism violence in the home so it's like duh of course it's like this Mike TV, though, right. Mike TV, passive, impotent, ineffectual parents right. who were just like, ah, just, ah, you know, overwhelmed, sigh, like, what, what, what do you do with this kid? And so, right. so it, isn't it, it's so fascinating, two polar opposites, same child. And, right. and, and again, this is the Uh, it's not about the content of anything. It's about that, that produces whatever child that we have. It's about the anxiety we bring into it. And you can be just as anxious being passive. You can be just as anxious being aggressive. And I just thought that was very interesting uh, juxtaposition about those those two characters. Um, anything? You, any thoughts about that? Because I thought that I thought that combination was very interesting. How you have two aggressive kids, very different families, but the process is the same. Well, I guess if we go back to like, you know, one of the main things that you've iterated all along, this idea that kids want to be seen, heard, and understood, mm -hmm. that on both ends of that spectrum, if a, if a parent is either deeply uninvolved or passive or just allows the kid to run the show, that is not seeing, hearing, and understanding your kid. That's basically opting out and not knowing what to do with any of it. And, and it's not the correct dynamic, right? The kid is supposed to be a kid and the parent is supposed to be the parent. So, um, and then on the other side, clearly when it's an abusive home, like, yeah, the kids aren't feeling seen, heard, or understood there either. So even though they, it kind of manifests what looks like different or opposite, it's actually doing the same thing to the kid. They're not in any way feeling seen, heard, or understood, or related with in a real kind of way. And everything they're doing is to try to push for being seen, heard, and understood, whether that's screaming in your face or like smashing something. So, uh, yeah. And Ellie, this, this, you know, is why, um, uh, something, you know, we have talked about before, uh, 
when I'm working with a young couple or I'm working with a single person or, or someone who's in courtship who's on their second or third marriage and, they, and I ask them, um, tell me about how the previous relationship ended or how did you leave home and how do you want to start this anew? And when I hear someone say to me, it was horrible, they're horrible, I had decided to do it exactly the opposite. I'm thinking in my head, I'm going to see you back in my office in a couple of years when the honeymoon phase ends, because it's not, it's, it's the intensity we bring into our relationships that causes the problems. It's the, it's the, you know, um, so if you, the idea is if you grew up in a family, right, that was very stingy with money. And because of that, you fought with your siblings all the time. So you say, when I'm a parent, I'm going to give my kids everything so they don't have to suffer like I did. You're going to produce kids who are going to fight like cat and dog because right. you're going to bring the same intensity that your parents brought in. It's always about the intensity and the immaturity, not about the parenting styles. That's why mm-hmm. all these parenting hacks and advice and stuff, it's good up to a point, but most of it, all we do is we take it, we bring the same intensity into the advice right, right. and we produce the same result. And that that's why I think those two characters um, are fascinating. Uh, we could probably spend a whole podcast on that. Huh. The last one, um, Augustus, Augustus? Augustus. Yeah, Augustus. Well, Augustus. I think they say Augustus in the film, but yeah, Augustus. Augustus. Um, so this one is an interesting one. You know, I couldn't find a parallel with The Breakfast Club, although I think the Ali Sheedy character is an interesting thought hmm. from you. Um, but the, the one thing that just came to my mind is Dr. Bowen used to say that um, people regulate their anxiety in very predictable ways. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, relationships. So we regulate our, so th- this would be, um, this would be an example where, you know, um, so long as I'm in relationship with you, spouse, mom, brother, best friend, I'm calm. But as soon as the relationship is unsteady, I'm wigging out. So Mm -hmm. the relationship steadies me. So people, people manage their anxiety in relationship or with things, food, sex, pornography, work. And, and and Augustus is someone who clearly has grown up in a family where uh, people regulate their anxiety. What, we don't know what it is though. We have no clue, but you can see how mother acts and, right. and how Augustus is acting. Um, and it's just a way, you know, food is a way of soothing. That's what would be one of my, you know, I have a few ways that I regulate my anxiety in maladaptive ways. For sure, I can, you know, sweets is something I grew up with. In my family, sweets was always a thing. I have no doubt this goes back many generations. So that's how I see Augustus. Um, any, any comments about Augustus on your end? Um, yeah, I think it's so interesting. Like I remember one of my teachers once saying to me, big is the front, so is the back. And so unpack this, that a bit. So meaning, you know, when you look at Augustus's family, <laughs> what you see is the rosy cheeks and the happy and the everything's good and the buttoned up blouse and the, you know, everything's lovely. Um, But what's underneath that is, you know, the level of anxiety that is causing this kid to basically eat himself to death. Um, And so big as the front, so as the back is this idea is like, you know, as perfect as it looks is usually as chaotic as it is in all the places that you don't see. Oh, that's a great line. I never heard that before. You're going to have to send me, email me that. uh, that That's a good line. (laughs) Yeah, that's great. I think actually that's true, by the way. I think, uh, I think, I think that's true. I need to think about this more in terms of, uh, 
over the years of the family. Well, I think it's like interesting with things like Instagram or things like that, like, you know, these very curated perfect lives often sort of uh, mask the level of chaos that's going on, like behind that, you know, sort of perfect image sort of thing. Or you mm. find somebody who's very buttoned up and very together a lot of the time, unless it's a fully integrated, you know, they have a system of this is how they've organized their lives, not to manage their anxiety, but to simply because they've actually built themselves that way. Um, usually it's an interesting thing to think about, you know, sometimes yeah. you'll meet somebody who's so happy <laughs> and you know, big is the front, so is the back. That's so, a great line. Yeah, yes. Please right? send that to me. That's great. Sure. Um, okay, so here's, uh, I, so I was thinking about, um, you know, what ties all these characters together that clearly um, Charlie uh, is not, comes from a, comes from a different stock, right? Okay? So the one thing that I thought of um, is a line I've heard repeated in different ways from Marie Bowen that goes like this. One of the observations he made when he was studying families um, is, you know, what what was the similarity in teenagers who develop severe acting out? So the, the key here is severe. Mm. Okay, so these are kids who probably who've been kicked out of a whole bunch of schools, who uh, the, trouble with the law, uh, they just can't get it together. What he observed is the the um, the similar message that was conveyed in every single one of these families is a parent or parents who convey the message that. I love you no matter what you do, which on the surface sounds beautiful, right? I mean, I love you no matter what you do. I, 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 can, I am sure at some level, if parents heard this, there might be a little bit that go, a little something in all of us that goes like, what? Well, for sure, you that? always, <laughs> that's, you, uh, that's beautiful. one of the like constant narratives of parenting is this idea of unconditional love. And you also hear stories of parents whose children did horrible things. And you might like, you can't stop loving your kid, but like, so it's a bit of a confusing soupy message. It's hard to understand. So, so what do you mean when you say that? So I think, um, so I think what, I think Bowen being a little impish, cause I think he's being a bit impish with that line. I think what he means is when people say, I love you, no matter what you do, I think people confuse love with accept or agree with, and that we tie those things together. Mm -hmm. um, and that unconditional love means even if you're doing something that violates the principles in this home, even if you're doing something that breaks the law, um, that um, uh, there's somewhere in the tent of my acceptance that it that that um, is okay with that because you know you know your family and 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 it's it's all good and I think what Bowen was trying to say is these kids who are acting out in this way these are very very chronically anxious families very anxious families and they are not clear on what their thinking is these are feeling only families everything mm. is feeling and their tidal waves of feelings and they guide their lives by these tidal ways of feelings when you think about charlie's family you can see charlie's family also feels but they're driven by principle how do we know 
all the grandparents are at home. Well, as, as Jews, you and I know that one of the big principles, I think it's not, not only, I mean, it's, it's mentioned in a whole bunch of different ways, but it's like a serious one, is honor thy mother and thy father. And so this investment in, it doesn't make that difference how you feel about your parents. Right. You have an obligation, a Jewish legal obligation. That's right. That's right. Exactly. And so this idea that, you know, um, that you are obligated by the, from the yoke of heaven, right, to do something with these people. Um, and so uh, here you have a family who's poor, who they have trouble you know, really eating, right? They're eating cabbage soup all the time, where the grandparents are all living with um, Charlie's parents. Now, by the way, um, I work in my practice, I work with different um, races, religions, cultures. There are certain cultures that I work with right now where the grandparents are not put in a senior citizen. They are brought into the home with the uh, the families that I'm with. I am not judging that. I am not saying that's good or bad. What I am saying is, though, there are certain principles that still exist in 2021 where this is true. So again, it's not about the principle itself, but is the family more oriented towards principle or is it more oriented towards feeling? So Charlie's family, clearly you see one of the principles there. You can see it in Charlie, how humble he is, how he wants to give back uh, his money. I think, what is it? He wins. Oh, he thought if I sell the right. golden ticket, I can give the money to my parents because we really can use the money. So principles of, um, of I don't know, it's frugality like, or- Yeah, um, or right action. You know, what come, the, pr the principle of, what are the priorities? The priorities are the survival of our family, not me going to the chocolate factory for a day. Exactly. Right. Right. That's right. So there's something so there's something that exists higher than my own pleasure. Right. In Charlie's family. And the other thing I would say um, that uh, Charlie did not grow up in an environment. I love you no matter what you do is that um, it, it's a very small scene, Ellie, but I, I think it's a very important scene. Um, so let me just, I'll, I'll quote it and then we can unpack it here because I, I think this is important. Um, and it's important for two reasons. The scene, just to paint the scene here for those who've seen the movie, the, the scene it, or who haven't seen the movie, Charlie is out the window and his father just lost his job. Okay. And, and, and he wasn't making that much money to begin with. And I can tell you growing up in a family where, um, uh, growing up in a family where my dad um, lost his job without any security afterwards, the stress that that put on our family and the feeding mm. that happened post that um, was uh, palpable. Uh, it was always in the air. But here, this is how it plays out. Charlie's looking out the window and, and kids, I think kids intuitively sort of look to their parents in many ways to see like, is it okay? Like, I just heard something. Are we going to be okay? And they don't care what their parents say, but they definitely care what their parents do. Right. <laughs> okay? And so this is what he sees. Now, he doesn't hear this really, but we hear it as, as sitting in the audience. So um, I think the father says, uh, oh yeah, he goes, uh, we were barely making ends meet as it was. And the mother says, uh, uh, Mrs. Uh, what, Beckett? No, what's her Bucket. last name? Yeah, Mrs. Bucket. Charlie Bucket. Um, and then she says, you'll find another job. And he says, until then, I'll just, well, I'll just thin down the soup a little more. Don't worry, Mr. Bucket, our luck will change. I know it. Whether she's delusional or whether she's crazy, what she's not saying is, yeah, ruin 
his family. No, you did it. You're crazy. You know, that right. back of a, and Charlie's watching this. So you, this is the family he has grown up in. Mm-hmm. Right. So when people say poverty, poverty is the reason why these kids, you're getting caught up in the content. You can grow up without means and still live in a family that is guided by principle and it will steady your ship in life. And you can grow up in a family with incredible means and incredible privilege and wealth and RSPs and all this. And you can grow up overwhelmed by feelings um, and and anxiety. And so this is, you know, moving away from content Mm. and moving towards how anxiety moves through a family really dictates sort of um, how kids are going to leave their um, their homes so let me stop there before i go on to more points any thoughts about this idea of um these kids other than charlie all growing up with this general sense of no matter what you do sweetie no matter how cruel you are no matter how gluttonous you are i just accept and love you any, any thoughts, Ellie? Yeah, I think I used to, you know, when I know people who, for instance, are teachers creating a relationship with their students in schools, like, um, I really, really like you as a student, but sometimes I don't like your behavior. And I, because it's essential that kids feel their teachers like them or even love them to feel like they want to, because teaching is more than just information. It's also the relationship and the exchange. So you'll find if students think their teachers hate them, there's not any learning going on in that environment, but teachers also have to set boundaries. So teach, I I remember speaking to somebody who was a teacher, who was like, I tell my students, like, you know, I really like you, but I don't always like your behavior. And when I address you, I'm addressing your behavior, not you. Um, But I think that's like a, it's a nuanced thing as a parent because you're just with them right now, especially like 24 seven. So it's hard for kids to separate. This person is berating me for my behavior, not for who I am or what I am to them. Um, um, and I, so I think there's part of it. That's that nuance. Can we make that nuance when we address something with our kids? But yeah, I think the experience of anything goes, in any family, whether you have means or no means, that just doesn't make kids, again, it comes back to feeling seen, heard, and understood. Like part of feeling seen, heard, and understood is knowing where the lines are, knowing where the boundaries are, and understanding how the world works. When, When parents set boundaries for their kids, they're teaching them, this is who you are, this is who I am, this is how the world works. And you're going to have confidence functioning in a world where you understand how things work. Um, so I, I think it's challenging, though, you know, because you you do love your children no matter what. But it doesn't mean like, like it, it, behavior is a different thing, I think. So I, that's where I would make the separation. I'm not sure if that's the same as what you're saying. Yeah. So I want to just touch on your point of um, this is challenging. Lest mm-hmm. anyone think what we're talking about here is, oh, so I just have to do A, B, and C, and then it's all good. This is this stuff is so deeply rooted that um, uh, I don't think it's hyperbolic to say it takes a lifetime of work and many generations to sort of work through those emotional knots that get passed down. So 
I just want to touch on this idea of, you know, what, so what drives that idea of, I love you no matter what, and the parent has trouble setting boundaries, like what drives that? Mm-hmm. And people who think that it's just the lack of a parenting course are not thinking about this clearly, how powerful mm-hmm. this stuff is, because a parenting course ain't going to get you out of this. So what drives this type of thing? And um, I think a lot of what's going on here is an unrecognized anxiety in parents who are regulating their anxiety okay so there's something in the parent that's unsettled it could be their marriage it could be something with their own parents it could be with a sibling there's something unsettled and they have this kid and they don't know what to do with all this unsettled stuff right and so there's something that happens whereby being overly accommodating to their kids in the short term, it calms them down because they feel like they're loving. Because when we feel like we're loving and we feel like we're supporting our kids, we feel good. We feel like we're doing something good. Like in the old, the, the mm. biblical idea in Brishit, yeah, this is good. I mean, and the huh. child calms down because right. the child's feeling like I get all these sweets. My mommy and daddy loves me. So in the short term, it works. It's the old idea, you know, why do people do drugs and alcohol? Because it works. Right? People are, oh, oh my God, how can they drink like that? Because it works. Right. That's why. Right. So in the short term, you have this very anxious family. Okay. And, and when I say an anxious family, I'm being very specific here. This is not about a mother or a father. It's two people generally who have a lot of chronic anxiety mm-hmm. and they're overly accommodating because it makes them feel better. Okay. They're, they're giving their kids something and, and the, the child feels good and they feel, and it's, it works very well in the short term. For example, think about a baby, Ellie, think about a baby. So anybody who knows about sleep training, hell, Absolute hell. But anybody who knows about sleep, who remembers sleep training, yep. knows that the minute you start accommodating to your child's um, sleep by bringing them into your bed, you're done. They won. And now you have this kid in your bed until they're nine. <laughs> like, I know families like this. So I would disagree. I did that with my kids and then set boundaries. So I kind of found a balance between those two things. But yes, I. Oh, uh, what I did what you just saying. say? No, I'm sorry, Ellie. No. What did you just say? You what? I did it up to a point. And then what did you do? And then I set boundaries. I'm no, but okay, but see, Ellie, you're you're not you're not a good student here. You're Ellie, <laughs> you set boundaries. What Bowen is talking about is these are parents who don't. They constantly double down on accommodating because oh, I'll tell you something so- funny about that. Because sure. I remember when I first started, when I had my first kid, first of all, I had never changed a diaper until I had my first kid. Like I was not somebody who taught, who thought about getting married and having kids. I, I had no idea what I was doing. I was terrified. So, um, but, and my, uh, both of my kids were quite early and quite small. And so um, they were at first usually eating every 45 minutes. So bringing them into the bed with me was a survival tactic, mm-hmm. regardless of what people think about that. But I remember once going to the pediatrician's office and um, there was a, it was like a walk-in clinic. I had a question and there was a, this amazing doctor that was there. He's this young South Asian guy. And I was saying to him, you know, I just wanted to know, like, is it really okay that like the baby's in the bed? And he's like, the only reason you're asking me that is because you're white. He was like, in the rest of the world, this is perfectly normal. He said, but the difficulty in the Western world is parents keep the kids in the bed for themselves and that's why they never leave 
in South Asian, like in other places in the world, you're in the bed because it's utilitarian and it's functional. And the, as soon as the kids are developmentally ready, they leave on their own and you never have to deal with it again. And it was such an interesting thing for me. Like, is the kid in the bed for me or is the kid in the bed like just to function in this situation, which I think speaks to what you're saying that are they in the bed to regulate your own anxiety? In which case, then yeah, it's, it's like capitulating to what you said. It's, it has nothing to do with right boundaries. This, com this comes back to, that's it, it, a great um, vignette with, the, with this uh, pediatrician, because mm -hmm. this comes back again to the idea, it's not about the content. Right. Bringing a child into bed is beside the point. It's about the anxiety in the parent. Right. So when, when you, this general idea here with all these kids in this film is that you have all these parents who regulate their anxiety, keep themselves calm by doting on their children. It's not based on any principle. What you're, the pediatrician was talking about is, if your principle, okay, here, is that there's an efficiency of bringing my child in for me, or whatever the case may be, mm -hmm. and then at some point, whatever that point is, even if the child's upset, they're going to go back in the crib, okay? There's principles that are being driven that. But if your entire worldview is every time my child cries, I'm doing something wrong, there's something wrong here, this is very bad, and so I'm going to accommodate to that. Yeah. It's a bottomless pit. It's a right. bottomless pit. And so the, these kids get programmed from a very, very early age. And Dr. Bowen would say in utero that any upsetness, the parent orients their entire world to get rid of it. Well, and then so you're the putting, again, you're putting the locus of control. It's not, as long as my kid is happy, I'm calm. That's right. Now exactly. you're totally screwed. <laughs> that, it, Pardon the that's word, right. But... That's right. And I think that these are these kids. The kids in right. the Willy Wonka story are these kids. So, um, so a, a lot of these parents who who are engaged in this, they just don't see any of their part in this. They really do see this as a loving thing. That's right. why this work is so hard. That's why these right. parents can go to a JFI talk. They might even nod at what you're saying, right? Mm -hmm. But when they're back in the lion's den, right. It's just too powerful. This is just too, this, this is programming early. Right. Cause uh, you have to sit with your own anxiety in order to let your kid be upset. Well, first you have to recognize your own anxiety. A lot of these parents don't even recognize their own anxiety. They're so right. focused on their spouse or their child or the world that they don't right. even know they're anxious. Mm -hmm. Ellie, it's fascinating to me how many people I work with and I'll say to them, uh, oh, you, you appear, uh, you appear upset or anxious about this. They look at me like, I'm not anxious. <laughs> And they're not saying it like in denial. It's not like they're and in their denial. Foot's tapping. Like they, yeah, or like they're just, right. they just do something that is so clearly a, a, an anxious response. But mm -hmm. but they have no clue what I'm talking about. First of all, I think it's a cultural thing because I think when we think anxiety, we think Woody Allen. Right. So if if you're not acting that way, then you're not anxious. Um, but so it's it. This is tricky stuff. Okay. Um, and mm -hmm. so uh, so you have this thing where you have these very anxious parents who are over accommodating or doting on on their child and i just want to quote here from dr dr michael kerr um a psychiatrist and uh, and family therapist and author uh, here's his quote the inability to discern the difference between a parent's anxiety and their child's anxiety is not a parent's fault okay so mm. let's let's Listen to this here, because mm -hmm. you say it is not the fault of the parents that a, a father gets confused or doesn't understand about his anxiety versus his child's anxiety. Mm. Okay. Right. It's, it's 
too much enmeshed, infused. It's it's very hard to, to right. differentiate so, those like, things. Like for example, Veruca Salt and her father. So her father's very wealthy, very put together. And every single time she asks him for something, he has to give it to her. So right. he wouldn't necessarily understand that it's his anxiety that he's navigating not her demandingness nor nor would she even if Got she was it. 16 like molly ringwald's right. character nor would she be able to sit there and be able to sit there and have the maturity to go wow this is a very anxious process and i get whatever i want okay mm. so kerr goes on to say it is not a parent's fault but it has to do with their own emotional programming a legacy of their childhood no one parent is to blame so what Kerr is talking about here is, okay, if what Kerr is talking about is that there likely was a multi-generational process of something that happened. Now, you now good historians can go back at some point. Like, you, Ellie, you'll hear people say, um, my great-great-grandfather, something, 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 and it changed the whole family, and it's been happening ever since. Right. You don't usually get those stories, but every now and then I do. So you can't find the locus of the thing where the whole family now orients around strong feelings because of this nodal event that happened four or five generations ago. But mo for most of us, it's lost. It's just the way our families are. Right. And what's so bloody important about what Kerr is talking about here is it gets us out of the way of this idea, it's your fault or my fault. Right. It's your fault or my fault. Now, you know, people who are listening to this or if we were speaking to parents, you might think, hmm. this is all semantics. You know, like, what does this mean? Well, I'll tell you what it means. I'll tell you what it means. I don't know about you, Ellie. Okay. Um, well, I'll, I'll just share something. I'll, I'll just share something for me. So I know I have certain trigger points with my kids. They're predictable. They happen over and over. Um, some of it is related to school, uh, bullying, but one of the things that I have, I have an allergy to what people will think of my kids, in particular being bullied or being made fun of, uh, because I was bullied and, and, and uh, made fun of. Mm -hmm. And so um, one of my kids is a tick. It comes and goes, comes and goes, comes for a couple of weeks, and then it goes, and it comes and it goes, okay? When it comes, I tend to overly focus on it. And it's hard to get myself out of it. So with all of my, you know, experience and training and blah, blah, I get caught up in it. I start to worry and then I start to ruminate and then, okay. Mm -hmm. One of the things that helps me about this Kerr line is doing something very simple. Just to break the, the spell is to go, where does this feel familiar? And I go right back to my family of origin. I go, Oh, yes. I mm -hmm. remember my mom doing X, Y, and Z. And oh, yes, I remember my dad doing right. this too. Let me think about my grandfather and grandma. Oh, yeah. No, my grandmother on the maternal side. And once I do that, it's almost like some of my anxiety of what's wrong with you as a father? Like, what the hell? Right. What's wrong with you? Or the opposite. What's wrong with my kid? Right. Once I expand it out, it's almost like my anxiety just starts to settle a bit. And when that happens, now I have more space to do something about it. I could I have options. But when I'm caught in the in the in the 
it's almost like a possession of it's mm-hmm. something's wrong with me as a parent, or right. there's something wrong with you as a kid. It's very hard to be nimble and creative and playful about what I'm going to do about this thing. So I, I think that that line from Bowen that no one is to blame, that it's just, this has just been going on in your family for lots of generations, mm-hmm. I think is really helpful. And that's why family history um, has this counterintuitive way of just regulating our anxiety and knowing we're just, we're just part of this big soup of stuff that um, I'm from, um, which now we can think of, okay, okay. So what has worked in my family? What hasn't worked? What do I need to work on? And now I'm more nimble, but you gotta lower, you gotta, you gotta move the focus off your kid or yourself, or there there really is nowhere to go. Um, Yeah, I think it also, well, I think it's great what you're describing, because what are you doing? You're moving from judgment into diagnosis right? If you're in judgment, everything's blame, somebody's wrong, somebody's good, somebody's bad. But diagnosis is curious, like, huh, where does this come from? What is, you know, if you were to think of anxiety in a, um, like in a clinical sense, not in clinical anxiety, but like if you have high cholesterol and then you go back into your family and see, oh, high cholesterol runs through this line of my family. So I already have a tendency towards it. And this is how we've dealt with that and da, 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 da. There's no longer like, oh my God, my parents were the worst. They had high cholesterol. It's like, oh, okay. So now I know I have to develop tools to be able to deal with that tendency and takes the whole charge off of it. So I think it's beautiful what you're describing, because when you say, where, where have I felt this before you go into diagnostics rather than like, you know, being hating of everybody that you've ever interacted with. Right. And (laughs) And it's somebody's fault that this is going on, which gets nobody nowhere because you're not actually addressing it. You're just putting the blame somewhere. Which is one of the problems, and this is not a topic for this podcast, but it's one of the problems with our current psychiatric uh, diagnostic criteria. Because once you diagnose someone in a family with whatever you diagnose them with, mm-hmm. it doesn't make a difference. Depression, anxiety, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia. Once that happens, all the resources and the focus goes on that person and we lose the complete gestalt of everything else that's happening in the family that's exacerbating the symptoms in that one individual this isn't to deny there is something happening perhaps at organic level we're not even so sure but even if that's true um everything gets uh, focused there and then very it's very hard to change um uh uh, anybody else's part in this last point and um that's what i have for today so the last thing i want to talk about here is you know ellie there's this idea you hear this i hear this a lot in my practice of um my husband and I are not on the same page on fill in the blank, computer time, uh, snacks for the kids, whatever. Right. And I, we're seeing you because we really need to have a unified front. We really need to have a unified front. Okay. So um, quote, first quote of all, unquote, unified front. <laughs> yeah. Unified front. So yeah. I have to be you know, guilty as charged uh, for many years of um, my professional life. Uh, I had that same perspective. I taught parents how to have a unified front. Um, and then I switched. <laughs> I switched after uh, mm. being introduced to David Freeman's work back in 2002, I think. Mm. And I've never looked back. Um, and I could tell you also, um, in my own personal life, um, I don't aspire at all to have a unified front with my mm. wife. Um, I think we're doing pretty good. Um, I'm not saying it's the only way, but 
I think it's at least one perspective to think about. And it doesn't have to be like the sacred cow of the relationship. Exactly. Well, okay. I think I heard, you know, my, my current supervisor has this line where show me a family with a really good unified front and I'll show you one member of that couple who's biting their tongue to the point where there's no tongue left. Mm. Okay. So he, he, let's take Charlie. I think Charlie won the lottery. Because what does he have? He's got a bunch of wise elders in his home. Mm -hmm. They don't all agree. Mm -hmm. Take take the grandfathers. Right. Joe, <laughs> Grandpa Joe is a dreamer. And, you know, he wants to get back. He's caught up in his dreams. And Charlie, we're going to, that's wonderful to have a grandparent like that. Mm -hmm. Take his other grandfather. Right. No one's going to win this. Are you crazy? He's a realist. Right. He's a realist. They both love Charlie, but mm -hmm. one sees the world in this way. And what's lovely about this family is no one is telling the other one to think this way because you're going to damage Charlie. Right. Stop it with that. So the message isn't stop it with the dreams or stop it with the reality. There is space in the family for both ideas. And mm -hmm. Charlie wins the lottery. Why? Because it does take dreams and it does take reality to build a business, to have children and all, and all this sort of It takes both of those ideas mm. and then take the grandmother the wacky grandmother the uh, the delusional grandmother right yes and her delusions the she says things that are as we say in yiddish nourishkeit nonsense mm -hmm. but then every now and then right she drops a truth bomb mm -hmm. okay and no one no one tells charlie don't listen to her she's she's crazy she's the crazy one because you know what we say in family therapy Show me the family member who's, who I want to work with. I want to speak to the family member right. that everyone in the family is saying, don't speak to them. They're too crazy. Or don't speak to them. They're the black sheep of the family. Mm -hmm. I want to speak to them. Yeah. Because okay? I want to hear from them. So well, all this just to throw in, in Judaism, yeah. we understand that when we lost prophecy after the second temple, it was put into the mouths of babes and fools. Hmm. So it's this idea that sometimes the, th and why? Because those are the people you never listen to. And it's so interesting what you're saying. That's and that character shows up in a lot of places where there's the jester who's the only one that no one takes seriously, but is the only one actually telling the truth. Yeah, and and, and so you look. I mean, this is um, this is why when I'm working with parents and they speak and we talk, mm -hmm. when we when we pick the school for our kid, when we did this, when we, I'll always say to them, you know, can you please, just for the sake of these sessions, can you please speak to me from I. I want to hear the I in this. And they get mm. very uncomfortable with that. Mm. But what I'm what I'm trying to what I'm trying to convey here um, to parents who are open to this is that your family's a lot richer when you have different wisdoms coming into this house. Now, you might say, well, isn't there a violation when you know when when you're you're a freaking frack? Well, you know, it's right. such a rare situation, Ellie, when people marry. And that 15 years into a marriage, they wake up and they realize, oh, my God, we don't agree on fundamental things. I, I don't buy that. I mean, I've been doing this work for 30 years. I can count on one hand the amount of times that really, really happens. Like, yes, there are situations where one spouse will come out as gay after 20 years of marriage and no one saw it come. Sure. There are some situations um, I'm not even sure what it would be. I guess where someone changes such drastic political mm -hmm. thoughts that coming home, it's so discordant that, but generally for most people, people bully each other to find a unified way of thinking and feeling. Right. The kids get this watered down sort of like 
ego and mesh thing. They can't differentiate their parents from the other. And, and they're poorer for it. And I think right. Charlie wins the lottery here. He's got all these different um, wise elders in his life. They don't mm. see eye to eye on certain things. You can mm. see where it causes some tension. Yeah. But he can absorb it and, and he gets to make of it um, that, you know, of, of, of his own will. Uh, and I think that's one of the reasons why, again, it's a movie, I know, but I think that's one of the reasons why Charlie's foundation is so much more solid than all of these other kids. Yeah. Um, so with that, those are my thoughts. Awesome. Uh, hopefully, hopefully some of our listeners can can bring some of that into this new school year. And I, I just want to wish everyone uh, good health and um, and a good, but yet weird, odd upcoming 2021, <laughs> 2022. <laughs> Amazing. Um, I want to mention that at some point it would be really great to talk about what it actually does look like in practice to not have a united front. How do you run a house if you have two leaders who have different visions or different ideas about things? Because I think on the on the theoretical, it's a beautiful idea. It's hard to imagine it on the practical for I think most people because yeah, it's been I'm such a pervasive idea for so long. It would be really great to get some sense of that. So maybe we can find a movie that you know will. I'm going to look around, see what we can find eventually. Kramer versus Kramer. Uh, that worked. <laughs> <laughs> no, for sure. Yeah. If we yeah, can find a movie, I, I definitely could, I, I definitely uh, uh, would, would be uh, excited to talk about that. Cool. I have some thoughts to share. Uh, but I think what we agreed upon is for our next film, it won't be recorded next week, but the week right. after we're looking at ghost world. Yeah. I'm super Great. excited. Yeah. Awesome. Wonderful. Thank you so much for everyone, everyone for joining us. Please don't forget to subscribe and share and send us your movie ideas. Thanks Avram. And Oh, by the way, Ellie, to those mm -hmm. uh, of our um, listeners who are of the faith, uh, a hug Sameach, a good, sweet year. And uh, that's that. May you all be written in the book of life for good. I mean, I mean. All right. Bye. Bye. -bye.